Father, once again, we thank and praise you for a new day of life and of the opportunity to serve you. We thank you for your grace and mercy that are new every day. We thank you for the blessings that you have bestowed on this campground all week. And we pray that it will continue to the very last moment. Bless everyone according to their needs who has been here all week. And Lord, prepare the ground and the plans for next year, provided that Jesus doesn't come back by then. But we would be overjoyed to return to this beloved campground and fellowship with one another a year from now. And so, Lord, bless us as we meet together today. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> I'm going to take a minute. Uh, I was just in a conversation with this dear lady who we know from a long time ago. And uh, I just remember that I had a note in my Bible about grace. We were talking about that. So I'm going to share that for her sake, but it might be of some benefit to all of you. I wrote this down some time ago when I was dealing with a person that had a problem between grace and law. This is the way I understand the Seventh-day Adventist understanding of grace. And the reason I like what I've heard is because that was Luther's position on grace. He was right on grace. He was wrong on the Sabbath. Grace for the Seventh-day Adventist is understood to mean more than the demonstration of God's loving and forgiving attitude toward sinners. It is his divine power, not just acknowledged forensically, but experientially. It doesn't just change the sinner's standing before God, it changes the sinner inwardly. Grace is a word used habitually by evangelicals who do not understand it as a divine power that operates inwardly. Some Seventh-day Adventists have adopted this evangelical view of grace that I just mentioned. And consequently, they are unable to experience victory over sin. I've met Adventists like that. They say to me, 
we will always sin. As though there was no possibility of victory over sin. And folks like this get discouraged and move closer to the evangelical view because they don't, achieve, they don't experience victory over sin. But the Adventist understanding of grace is not just that it provides a declaration of forgiveness of sin on God's part. God declares you forgiven. But he actively, through his Holy Spirit, works to give us victory over sin. And that's based on the New Testament teaching. It's clear to me. Now, we may be finishing a little early today. I don't know how long I can talk. I think I may run out of, may run out of notes by quarter to ten, but we'll see. If I do, I'll quote from my book. 2 Timothy chapter 3, the first five verses, gives the historical context in which we are living. When Paul says, understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, trouble. They will come. Why? The times of trouble will, become, will come because of the general character of humanity at the time of the end. He continues answering the why. Why will there come a time of difficulty or trouble. Quote, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, in other words, they will be never satisfied, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, Reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Quite a list, quite a description. That's the way people are going to be in the last days. And that's precisely why the last days 
is a time of trouble. Because this is the way people are going to be. This is the way they're going to behave. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 10, also gives us the historical context of the last days and of the day in, in which we're living. It says, the day of the Lord, which is referring to the return of Jesus, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. That is, suddenly, unexpectedly. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies, all of the elements, will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. And then Peter, in verses 11 and 12, characterizes God's people. Paul, in 2 Timothy 3, characterized people in general. Now, Peter is characterizing God's people who are living at the time of the day of the Lord. He characterizes God's people with just two words. He says, since all of these things are thus to be dissolved. What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God? What a contrast. between the people that Paul describes in 2 Timothy 3 and the people to whom Peter is speaking, both groups living at the time of the end. Now, some translations of... Uh, 2 Peter 3, 10 to 12, end with a question mark and some end with an exclamation point, as does the English Standard Version, which I'm doing. It ends with an exclamation point when he says, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be? in lives of holiness and godliness, exclamation mark. Both the question mark or, an, or the exclamation mark are appropriate. But I like the exclamation mark better than the question because it indicates forcefulness and strong feeling If this is what the last days are going to be like, is the character of God's people something that we should be concerned about? 
What will be, when you listen to these, this description in 2 Timothy 3, what will be so obviously lacking and desperately needed and required during those days? The fruit of the Spirit. For God's people. Because God wants us to live holy and godly lives during that period especially. And that's going to take divine power. That's going to take the fruit of the Spirit. which is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. Think of that, self-control, in relationship to the way people in general are going to be and how they're going to live and behave in the last days, in the time of trouble. Above all, self-control. Control of self. When you look up the word self-control in Webster's, you find that it means restraint exercised over one's own impulses, emotions, or desires. Self-control is the exact opposite of what we see so blatantly manifest in our culture today. Today it's do whatever you want. No restraints, no restrictions. And to, today, people are, when I looked up the word self-control in Webster's Dictionary, I was amazed at, at the list. Such as self-absorbed, self-indulgent. That's the way people are living today. Self-centered. Self-exalted, self-sufficient, self-will, self-esteem, self-assertive, self-destructive, self-worship, selfishness, etc., etc. The list is long. Long. 
And on the religious side, self-righteousness. Which is a sense of superior spirituality. The attitude spiritually that I'm better than you are. Self-righteousness. And for a lot of folks, self-righteousness is awful hard to take from God's people. Now, in the same passage in Galatians 5, which lists the fruit of the Spirit, we're told that the believer is to walk by the Spirit. In verses 16 and 25, we're told that the believer is to be led by the Spirit, verse 18, and to live by the Spirit, verse 25. You see, God's Word is telling us that to be Christian means more than believing in Jesus. It means more than that. It's more than having faith. It means living that faith. And in the last days, the day of the Lord, the presence of God is confirmed by the presence of his people who can be identified as his people by the way they live and by the way they behave. People who demonstrate by their very lives his divine principles of human life. You see, the fruit of the Spirit are the evidence of consistency between our testimony and our life. And without that consistency, there is no effective witness as servants of the Savior. Now, how serious is this? Open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 6. Galatians 6 verse 8. The apostle says, the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the spirit will from the spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good. 
for in due season we will reap. If we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith, especially those who are a part of the kingdom of God, especially those who are a part of the body of Christ, which is the church. Why is that important? Because in those days, we are going to need each other. We are going to need the support of each other, the encouragement, the prayers, maybe even the admonition out of love. And it's no wonder when you understand this background and this need, when you understand the, the nature of the times of the time of the end, what people in general are going to be like and how they're going to behave. When you read all of that, that description, it's no wonder that the list of the fruit of the Spirit climaxes with self-control. Control of self is essential if God's people are to live lives of holiness and godliness in the last days. And this is why I think camp meeting is so important. Thank God for our church services and our Sabbath school classes and other opportunities, prayer meetings, and so on. But camp meeting gives, gives us 10 days in which we can come together and focus specifically. And in that sense, camp meeting can be a revival A, an awakening of spiritual spirituality. So self-control is essential, but it's not possible without the other fruit of the Spirit. Without love, which is, remember, agape, sacrificial love. Without love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness, self-control is not possible. Doesn't self-control control those other things? If you're out of control, you will not have joy or peace yeah, he says, if you're out of control, you won't have joy or peace. 
So, you know, if, if, if these are true, there's no self-control. Anything goes. And that's the way a lot of folks want to live. No restrictions. No boundaries. And it's important to know that the fruit of the Spirit are all inner qualities of the Christ-like character. And I've said it many times, but it bears repeating, they cannot be achieved, only received. And thank God that while they cannot be achieved, they can be received. There is hope for us. We can live lives of holiness and godliness. It's not impossible, but it takes divine grace, divine power, and the fruit of the Spirit to do it. Now, listen to this and tell me if you agree. This is from Ellen White. Quote, Every true Christian will develop in his life the characteristics of divine love. He or she will reveal a spirit of forbearance, of beneficence, and a freedom from envy and jealousy. This character developed in word and act will not repulse and will not be unapproachable cold, and indifferent to the interests of others. The person who cultivates the precious plant of love will be self-denying in spirit and will not yield self-control even under provocation. By the way, that's why a lot of people end up in divorce, because they, they lose self-control because of provocation. And she goes on, the heart where love reigns will be guided to a gentle, courteous, compassionate course of conduct toward others whether they suit our fancy or not. Whether they respect us or treat us ill. Love is an active principle. It's not just a feeling. 
It keeps the good of others continually before us, thus restraining us from inconsiderate actions, lest we fail of our object in winning souls to Christ. Second Testimonies, 123. Do you agree? Pardon? The operative word is the true Christian, yes. What is a true Christian? Someone who takes it seriously. For whom it's more than just head knowledge. It's more than just belief in truth. Belief in doctrines. And by the way, the word truth and the word doctrine means the same thing. We just don't believe in them. We apply them. We live them. So what is the problem? What is, the, what is it that keeps a person from such a way of life, from developing these characteristics of divine love? Self. So what do we need? The Holy Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit. How do we get it? Well, Jesus tells us just before his ascension, Jesus said to his apostles in the first chapter of the book of Acts, verse 8, he says, you will receive what? Power. Power. And the Greek word is dunamis, from which we get the word dynamite. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. No question. To the end of the earth, he says, everywhere, all over. You will be my witnesses. Witnesses to what? Witnesses to his power to transform. That's what. When you surrender to Jesus, he gives you his Holy Spirit who, who provides the divine power. And who then begins to produce his fruit in you. Power over self. Self-control. 
what the Bible calls the new self. Now, read Colossians, turn to Colossians chapter 3. And we'll read the first 10 verses. Colossians 3. Verse 10 verses. It begins with a Bible if. It says, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And the first thing is sexual immorality. And I want to pause here just a minute and say the definition of sexual immorality is not the cultural definition, but the biblical definition, God's definition. Put to death, what, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too, he's writing to Christians, remember, In, those, in these you too once walked when you were living in them. But, there's a Bible but. But, now you must, that's an imperative, you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. We just uh, had a sad death in our community, a man well-known. He was a classmate of my wife since kindergarten all the way up. He was a member of the local Lutheran church all of his life leader, highly respected in the community. When we attended his uh, wake, the cars were lined up for blocks, people coming. 
and I liked him. He was a nice guy. But in spite of all of that, a lot of obscene talk came out of his mouth. He says, you must put these all away, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Colossians chapter 2, verse 6 says, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith. And then in chapter 3, beginning with verse 2, set your minds on things that are above. Put to death what's earthly in you. You have put off the old self and put on the new self. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. And then back to Galatians chapter 5, we find that the list of the fruit of the Spirit ends with this. After self-control, it says, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Now, I'll read another quote from Ellen White. You tell me if you agree. She says, the Christian life is a battle and a march. But the victory to be gained is not won by human power. The field of conflict is the domain of the heart. In other words, the great controversy, friends, is not something that's raging out there in the cosmos, in the universe someplace. The great controversy is raging in human hearts the inner being. Then she says, the battle which we have to fight, the greatest battle that was ever fought by mankind is the surrender of self to the will of God, yielding of the heart to the sovereignty of love. The old nature 
born of blood and of the will of the flesh, cannot, cannot inherit the kingdom of God. The hereditary tendencies, the former habits, must be given up. That's from the Mount of Blessings, page 141. Do you agree? Is that biblical? Yes. Then she says in Child Guidance, page 116, she says, the Christian life is one of constant self-denial and self-control. These are the lessons to be taught the children from their infancy. Self-denial, self-control. Teach them that they must practice temperance, purity in thought and heart and act, that they belong to God because they have been bought with a price. And then in the Adventist home, page 15, she says, and listen to this, in relationship to that description from Paul about how people are going, are going to be like in the last days. She says, the elevation or deterioration of the future of society will be determined by the manners and morals of the youth growing up around us as they are educated and their characters are molded in childhood to virtuous habits, self-control, and temperance, so will their influence be upon society. If they are left unenlightened and uncontrolled, they will determine the state of society for years to come. Folks, here is the motivation for the Seventh-day Adventist school system. Is it expensive? Yes. Is it worth it? Yes. Every single penny. It really saddens me when I hear reports of schools closing. Sometimes it's because there are no children available anymore. But sometimes it's even because there's no longer financial support. And that is tragic. My parents both worked two jobs so that my, my three brothers and myself could attend uh, the Junior Academy and go to yeah praise the lord we have about 40 members in our church in Besmer 
but we have had the folks voted to they wanted a school again it had closed for many years and we had to build an addition in order to be up to code for school and they voted and I thought with this membership where's the money going to come from so I sent a letter out to the membership they said we're going ahead going ahead with it by the way that's the last time I laid blocks some cement blocks I built the foundation for the for our school our new school Ten years ago. But when the, when the school was finished, it was all paid for. We didn't know a penny. Praise the Lord. But then we had a problem. We didn't have any kids. But the folks said, we're going to build a school. No kids. Two or three only in the congregation. But we've been running for 10 years. And our limit is 15. We have 14. Next year, we have 15. We're going to have 15. God does it. People respond. You know, in that verse uh, in Second Peter, it was 11 and 12, when it says God's people will be, have holy conduct and godliness. Well, the rest of that says looking and hastening. And hastening. And coming into Christ. Yeah. Which is exactly when you go forward in faith like you folks did. That That's what we're doing, hastening. Well, you know, some people say, if Jesus is coming, why do, we, why do all this? And I always answer, well, one day Martin Luther was walk, walking along a road and he saw a farmer planting trees. And so he stopped and he talked to this man. He knew him and told him, he said, if you knew that Jesus was coming tomorrow, what would you do? And the man said, I would keep on planting trees. We keep on doing what God wants us to do until he comes. And don't worry about when. That's up to him anyway. He says soon, I believe it, but he's going to decide the moment. Our problem, our, our call is to keep on in the faith, doing the work, evangelism, growth, winning souls, building the kingdom. Yeah. I um, wanted to comment on Christian education and the expense of it. And uh, I was fairly new Adventist, and I trusted God. I had three children on a secretary's salary, not a single parent, so on a secretary's salary, I put two of my kids through church school 
and academy and uh, the other one through church school. Uh, Secretary Sally was a very, very difficult period of time in my life, robbing Peter to pay Paul to do it, selling my piano and so forth and so on, just to put them through the school. But I did it. The Lord's grace. Mm -hmm. It's amazing. It's amazing. Yeah, it's amazing. It's a good sign. If you want to do something, you'll find a way. If you don't want to do something, you'll find an excuse. <laughs> yeah. Did you hear him? If you want to do something, you'll find a way. If you don't want to do something, you'll find an excuse. Right on. Now, in relationship to the children, our culture today is saturated with violence. Hollywood and the creators of violent video games are shaping our, the children into instruments of violence. You see the little ones, they run around, they're shooting. Where did they get that? From the video games. It scares me. So what I say is, parents, if you had little ones and they're watching videos, throw them out. Not the kids, but the videos. <laughs> now, sometimes it takes radical action. If you have to do it, smash your TV for the sake of the children. And she says in Child Guidance, page 161, strength of character consists of two things, power of will and power of self-control. And we have neither. We have neither unless God gives them to us. And it, that's why we need the Spirit. That's why we need the fruit of the Spirit. Now, have you, have you noticed that all of the other fruits of the Spirit are identified by a single word? But the last one, self-control, consists of two hyphenated words. The single words describe qualities of character, but self-control is different. The hyphen does not separate, it connects. Self-control is a compound word. I spent at least an hour during the night pondering that very fact while I was working on this. And my brain stroked those words like a hand would stroke a beloved pet that has crawled up into one's lap. And I ask myself, if this is not a character quality, if self-control is not a character quality, what does the hyphenated word self-control suggest? It suggests power over self. 
And what did Jesus promise? You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Divine power. Exactly what we need. And why does God give us this power? Because he created us and he loves what he has made. It's like an artist who has created a painting, who puts a high price on it. And he does that usually because he doesn't want to part with it. That maybe if I ask so much, nobody will buy it and I can keep it. Why, why does the artist feel that way about his work? It's because what he has created is an extension of himself or herself. That's why I told you about that painting that I'm going to get back from that church in Marquette. It's been hanging there for 59 years. And I'm going to get it back. And I have to tell you that words fail me to describe how I feel about that. I just can't wait for July 30 to have my painting back. Because it's an extension of the artist's self. It's a creation. And I love the way the Word of God describes the creation in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. It says, Then the Lord formed the man of dust from the ground. You know, use your imagination if you can and picture that. God forming a human being from Dirt. You know, I, I can imagine God kneeling in the dirt and scooping it up with his hands and shaping it, you know, like a sculptor would shape clay or, you know, tenderly shaping it. And the man is lying there. God is forming a creature, the divine sculptor at work, shaping the human creature, using material on earth like any sculptor carving a work of art from stone or from wood. And then it says, after he did all that, and there the man is lying, says he breathed into its nostrils the breath of life. God's own breath is what made Adam a living creature. God's power. As I said, artists put such high prices on their work because it is an extension of themselves and they really don't want to part with it. 
And God is like that. He formed Adam out of dirt and then he breathed into its nostrils the breath of life. And he doesn't want to part with it. And God did not part with what he made. Even after Adam and Eve sinned, the whole story of the Bible is, is about God's care for his creatures. He wants every human being to be redeemed. He doesn't want anybody lost. He wants everybody that he has made saved in the kingdom. And because of that, he has not left humanity alone. That's the whole story of the Bible. And what is the word that we use to, to, for that? Grace. The whole Bible is the record of his extended care for what he made even after the fall. I'm just worried that you're not going to fit that story that you're writing into this lecture. <laughs> and by the way, the father himself paid the highest price for our redemption. The life of his own son. Such is the value of every one of us to God who made us. And there's more good news. His Everlasting care extends beyond the cross. Divine, the divine creator is also our divine enabler. When we receive Jesus, we receive his Holy Spirit who produces the fruit of the Spirit within us. So the creating, molding, recreating process continues. so that we're unable to walk by the Spirit and live by the Spirit. So what am I supposed to tell you? But how did you become from a pastor there to a pastor yeah, to, to where you are today? You mean how did I come from the Lutheran to the Adventist yeah, faith ministry? You. Is that what you're talking yes. about? Well, that's a long story. I can't tell it in 15 minutes. That's why, that's why I'm interrupting you. I wrote a whole book about it. <laughs> well, I married a Christian woman. That's the problem. <laughs> a woman who loved the Bible. She grew up in the Lutheran Church, the Finnish Lutheran Church, which enjoyed a, a spirituality that is very similar to the Adventist spirituality, but through all kinds of mergers has disappeared. <coughs> Christian parents, she loved the Bible. She read, studied the Bible every day. And uh, enjoyed friendship with Christian people, whether they were Lutherans or what? And she met 
uh, this Adventist dentist's wife. He was practicing in Wakefield. I was serving in Besmer at Sharon Lutheran Church. She met this lady through another Lutheran lady who said, you need to meet Mrs. Bigford. You would, you would love her because she was a sports-minded. My, my wife liked to uh, jog and ski and skate and play volleyball and tennis and all of that kind of stuff. And this Lutheran lady said, you've you got to meet Mrs. Bigford because you would get along with her. And so she introduced my wife to this Adventist lady. Didn't know she was Adventist at that time. And they became friends and they began to play tennis and, you know, all that stuff. Ski. I even learned how to ski. Downhill skiing. And uh, she was a Christian woman. And they began to fellowship, pray together, study the Bible together, share the faith. And one day this lady, her name is Bertha, but we called her Bert. She invited my wife to the Wisconsin camp meeting. And Shirley asked me, do you mind if I go? I'd like to go. The old Finnish church used to have Bible camps. And they don't have Bible camps anymore. They have, it's more of a camping experience than a focus on scripture. And so Shirley said, I'd like to go. And I said, do you know where you stand? And she said, yeah, I know. So she went. And uh, she, she went twice, two summers in a row to Wisconsin. The second time, the speaker, the main speaker was Joe Cruz. <coughs> and I have referred to him ever since as Adventist heavy artillery. <laughs> Anyway, while my wife was there, she met a couple, a man and his wife, that were Adventists but had been Lutherans who had made the transition. But anyway, she heard the message. Joe gave an invitation, and she went forward and accepted the Sabbath. By the way, many years later, when I was on the faculty at the seminary at Andrews, I was invited to speak at the village church. And uh, Joe Cruz was there. He was sitting right in the front pew in front of the pulpit, amening me all the way through. Anyway, one thing led to another, and she came home from that camp meeting, and she was keeping the Sabbath. And that's why I called my book Stranger in My Home, because she was like a stranger to me, you know, living a different... And she began to be concerned about foods, diet, so on, and uh, making some changes there. Anyway, it was strange to me. <laughs> the problem was that uh, my church, my congregation, were not happy when she was baptized and became a member of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. They loved her. She was very active in the congregation. and. Uh, and so on. But uh, another thing happened that's it's really part of the story. Uh, in the mid-60s, mid, mid my wife was the, the vacation Bible school superintendent. 
in this Lutheran church, and she sent for the, the materials which were on creation. And when they came, she opened them up and looked at them, and then she came to me and she said, we can't teach this, because, and I looked at it, and she was right, it was on evolution, not creation. So I packed it all back, sent it back to the publisher with a letter telling them that uh, we, we're, we can't teach this, it's not biblical. That's one thing that happened. Another thing that happened was I was attending a meeting of Lutheran ministers up in White Pine, and uh, during the course of the discussion, we were talking about the Bible and interpretation and so on, and I felt obliged to defend the authority of the, of the written word. And one of the young pastors who was a recent graduate of the same seminary I had attended in Chicago, he came up to me and very me vehemently put his finger in my face and he said, the day is coming when people like you will not be allowed in the Lutheran ministry. Well, I was defending the traditional Martin Luther view of Scripture and what, what was going on in my church. Anyway, my ministry began to deteriorate because the congregation was unhappy and I didn't know what I was going to do. And I, I was struggling with this dilemma. You know, I thought, Lord, are you doing this? Why would you want my ministry to end after 10 years and seven years of preparation for ministry? I couldn't. I, I thought, if that's God's will, it's a strange face. He has a strange face. But anyway, I, I was in that real dilemma. And, but I was getting angry. Did I tell you that? I was, I was mad. I mean, no better word to use. I was mad at my wife. I was mad at all Seventh-day Adventists. I was actually starting to hate the church tradition that had caused all this misery. And I, I couldn't stand myself. And I, I thought, you're a hypocrite. How can you preach now to your people if you, if you, you have these kind of feelings, hatred and anger. And I, it reached the point where I decided I have to do something about this. So I went one day to the sanctuary, a beautiful sanctuary in that church, and I laid down on the floor. Did I tell you that? And I was there for a long time, moaning inwardly and asking God to forgive my my sin, I was wrestling with, I had a sin problem then. My anger and my hatred. And he did. He not only lifted that, but cleansed me from it, took it away. And then I went to the Bigford's house and confessed to them, and they confessed to me, and we forgave each other. And, and that's, you know, started a, a lifelong friendship that was unbreakable. And now they're gone, and it's hard for us to deal with that. 
And anyway, I didn't know what to do after that point. Now I could begin to focus on doctrine and theology to deal with, you know, what's what. And I, did I tell you I called my Lutheran professor in Chicago and he invited me to come down and we talked for two days. I talked, he listened. And then he finally said, you need to ask God what he's trying to say to you, which in effect from him, a Lutheran theologian, became my, the permission that I, was, that I needed to investigate further. Because I had to do it on my own. I couldn't just become an Adventist because my wife did. And by the way, there is even some Adventists who still believe that's the only way, only reason that I did it was because she did, I had, that I had no other choice. Which is not true, of course. But anyway, because I trusted him and uh, he was a spiritual man, not just a deep theological thinker, what he said when he said, you need to ask God what he's trying to say, that made it possible for me to freely begin to investigate. And so that's how it started. And uh, I had to resign from that parish. I didn't know what I was going to do. And one day the Bigfords invited us over and they said, we have decided that if you want to attend the seminary at Andrews, we will send you $500 a month. Now that was back in 1969, 70. $500 then was worth much more than now. And it was a, a sacrifice for them. Uh, I had no money. I was making 600 a month in those days. And a, and a free parsonage, but that was, I had no savings, nothing. There was no way that I could have gone to school. Well, after I got there and I, I started, at, and uh, this was adequate income for us, my wife was given a, a job at the seminary library, which helped too. Uh, then when I became, became more closely uh, convinced as I kept studying and digging uh, the denomination offered to help to pay for my tuition in the seminary which was a gift from God you know because I couldn't have done it no way and uh, so I was baptized at PMC in the spring of 71 and I don't know, nobody made any promises to me. Nobody said, if you become an Adventist, we'll do this and this and this. I didn't know what was going to happen. Well, they called me to be associate pastor at the Battle Creek Tabernacle. What a place to start. <laughs> Fortunately, the senior pastor was Jim Hayward. You know, you know Jim. A real nice, uh, supportive, encouraging guy. And so uh, that's what I did for two years. It was during that time that I wrote Stranger in My Home. But then the Lord changed something inside of me. I always wanted to be a pastor, but in this process of working on a master's degree and then a doctorate later, I, the, the uh, impression grew that I should go into teaching. So I went to see Elder Moon, who was the conference president at that time, and told him about that. 
And he said, I'll bring it up to the conference committee. We'll pray about it. And one day I got a call from him and I drove to Lansing to his office. And he said, the conference committee has decided to send you to pastor the Fairplain Church in Benton Harbor, which is just north of Berrien Springs. And while you're there pastoring, you can attend classes at the seminary and work on your doctor's degree. So that's what I did, a quarter on and a quarter off. And when I was finished with that, by the end of the 70s, I got a call to teach in the seminary at, uh, in the Philippines. And we packed up and went there. And were there three years, came back. And uh, I wanted to continue teaching, but nothing was available then. So the conference sent me to uh, Grand Haven, Wright churches. I really loved the time I was there at Grand Haven and Wright. Uh, in fact, I told the folks that if the seminary doesn't call me or if I don't get a teaching position somewhere, I'll stay here till I retire if the brethren let me. <laughs> I just loved it there. But then I got the call to the seminary, which I could not turn down. Grand Haven and Wright are right here. Pardon? Grand Haven and Wright are right here. <laughs> yeah, I know. I was at your feet when I was a kid. Yeah, so that's the story. But, you know, I could, there's more in between that happened. And so the Lord did it all. I didn't listen to my wife uh, because I, not that I didn't want to hear her, but I, I wanted to do it on my own because I had a lot of people to answer to. A whole 600-member church back in Bessemer. Oh, and then when I retired, uh, I thought, what am I going to do? And um, did I tell you about that? Uh, I had built a house in Berrien on Redbud Trail. And uh, my, my first conviction was I didn't want to stay in Berrien because preachers are a dime a dozen in Berrien Springs. I wanted to go someplace where I was needed. Uh, because in my opinion, you never retire from ministry. And uh, I, we could have moved to Orlando where our daughter was, or Denver where our son was, both Adventist centers. But we had a little summer place cabin in uh, the UP, just outside of Wakefield. So one day I, I was talking to the Lord about this and I, I said, if, if you want us to move back up to the UP, to Wakefield, would you sell our house for us? Within a week after that, my neighbor stopped by. He said, I, I heard that you're retiring. Are you moving away? And I said, yes, looks that way. He said, well, if you're going to move, I want to buy your house. What do you want for it? Well, I had had it appraised and so on, so I asked for the price. He said, sold. No arguing about the price or anything. And uh, I was still, I still had two years to go before I was actually retiring. He said, I'll rent it to you for two years until you have to move away. So we lived, we had to pay rent to live in our own house for two years. <laughs> But then we went up north, and when Elder Gallimore had just become president, he uh, heard about our move up there, and he called me. 
and asked me if I would pastor that church part-time. And so I said, yes, I will for two years. While I've been there 22. <laughs> and uh, I must have earned something because now I'm the senior pastor. <laughs> because I have a young associate. He works in the ABC, Sean Brizendine. My wife calls him Bulldozer Brizendine <laughs> because he's such a hard worker. Anyway, praise the Lord. God and the conference sent him there to help me, and we just get along fine, wonderful, and I'm supposed to be his mentor. So I do the best I can. So that's the story, brother. Are you satisfied? <laughs> Who will pray, please? Lord, it's Friday. It's preparation time. We've come to the end of the symbols. And we thank you for But we also thank you for the example of God in We pray that their influence may influence our lives. That we can walk circumspectly also. Thank you for the May we continue to receive a blessing evening meetings going to the Sabbath. May we not just get a blessing, but may we be a blessing. In Jesus' name. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.